The scripture reading for this morning is from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is uh, such an honor to be here and uh, to bring God's word to you this morning. Before I start, let me pray. Father God, this is not normally a place that is uh, for your worship, but this morning your people are gathered here to praise you. So Father, we ask that you would be here with us that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit as I expound on your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Hear what you have to say to us. Lord, please speak through me that our hearts might be convicted and encouraged at the same time and be brought closer to you, that we might be changed to be more in in the likeness of you, that we might see more clearly your holiness, your faithfulness, your beauty, your majesty, your grace, your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me just begin by saying that I care deeply for you. In fact, I care deeply for each one of you. And it's because that I care deeply about you that I care deeply about whom you worship. The psalmist here in Psalm 150 is exhorting us to give praise to the Lord. Praise is given when our hearts delight in something. We praise the things that we value and that we love. Praise is an outward expression of our inward joy directed at the object of our worship. It is an expression of delight to the one whom we love. My aim for, you, for us this morning is very simple. I want to encourage you to praise and worship the Lord. God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. My goal is to stir your hearts up in worship, to give you a foretaste of what is to come. A foretaste of what is to come. When our faith shall be sight, when we shall see with clear eyes the beauty, the majesty, the mighty deeds of our Lord, we will know without a shadow of doubt that He is indeed worthy. Psalm 150, which is at the end of the book of Psalms, reminds us of and anticipates the end, the end of the biblical storyline, when all will bend the knee and cry out along with the angels in Revelation 4 and 5, 
who never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But I recognize that this morning, none of us are there. None of us are entirely there. In fact, depending on where your hearts are at the moment, we may read Psalm 150 with varying degrees of disdain. Or it may seem very foreign to us altogether. Maybe you're here only this morning because a nice neighbor invited you to come. And frankly, you don't think much about worship. Because for you, worship is only what religious people like Christians do. Or maybe you're here and you've walked into this room like I've done so many times. And your heart is not quite in the right place. You've had a busy week. You've done the same old things again, meaningless tasks, at least what seems to be wasted breath. You've sung the liturgies of the secular world and you've come up empty. And the mundaneness of everyday life, the day in, day out of adult life, kind of lulls us into thinking that all that we have done is wasted breath. In the monotony of life, we fail to see the majesty of God's mighty deeds. But might I just say that both these lenses are distorted lenses. You see, all of us are worshippers, Christians or not. Even the postmodernist novelist David Foster Wallace recognizes, consider what he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. Wow. The Bible, of course, describes our distorted worship as idolatry. Ever since the beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve listened to the creature rather than the creator, we have been tempted to misplace our worship. Romans 1.25 describes this clearly. The unrighteous have exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Through the lens of our wandering and idolatrous hearts, passages like Psalm 150 seem like platitudes. Praise him. Praise the Lord. And passages like Revelations 4 through 5 make us wonder whether heaven will just be one long church service, boring church service. But consider that we praise not just because our hearts are always attuned perfectly to God. We praise because we anticipate His working in us to change our hearts to delight in Him. You see, as we sing about the gospel, as we proclaim His wonderful name, and as we recite His mighty acts, we find ourselves reminded of our true delight, of our true identity, and of our true destiny in Christ. Think about the time when the hockey team in Canada won the gold medal at the 2010 Olympics. You know, we, we so desired for them 
to win. We were so rooting for them, right? We were so proud of them. What, as Canadians, that when they struck gold, the whole city erupted in spontaneous praise. And we sung the anthem like, like we sing it every day. We erupted into spontaneous praise because it not only expressed our joy, but it completed it. The very cheering was part of the excitement. The anticipatory cheers leading up to the winning goal only magnified and confirmed our praise when indeed we had won victory. C.S. Lewis writes this in his Reflections on the Psalms. I quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. If it were possible to create a soul fully, to appreciate, that is to love and delight the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And so this morning, as we walk through this psalm together, as we praise God together, may I invite you to consider the exhortations of the psalmist. That the who, the what, the where, the why, the how questions that he asks us to consider might remind us of the God who is holy and worthy of worship. If you're taking notes this morning, my outline will be as follows. Number one, who or whom we praise. Number two, how we praise Number three, redeemed breath. Number four, practical implications. Number one, who we praise. Number two, how we praise. Number three, redeemed breath. And four, some practical implications. So let's begin with who. The psalmist begins with the question of who. Whom are we to worship? Now, this seems kind of like an obvious question, right? I mean, we are in church. And we would almost skip it, except for the fact that the psalmist exhorts us to praise the Lord or praise Him 16 times. 13 times, sorry. 13 times in 6 verses. 13 times in 6 verses. Implicit in this emphasis, of course, is that there is only one Lord. There is only one God. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. Now, I recognize that against the pluralistic, postmodern, tolerant society that we live in, one Lord, one Lord, seems offensive, even egotistical. Who is he that he should deserve all the praise and glory? But one merely has to consider that if indeed he is, is Lord. If indeed he is God, if his name is the great I am, 
if indeed he is creator and not the created, then who are we to question the legitimacy of his lordship? Should not the things that are created reflect and give glory to the one who created them? If God were not to get our praise, then who or what will? The alternative is to praise ourselves. And so we must banish this notion that this God whom we worship is a figment of our imagination or that he is merely one among many. He is, in fact, the one who made us, and furthermore, he is the one who has revealed himself to us. He is the one who has performed mighty deeds. God is not an absent God. He made us that we might reflect his glory and in so doing, enjoy him and praise him forever. There is a second emphasis, however, of the who question that I think we also should consider. And that is of lordship. If he is the Lord, what does that entail? John Frame, a prominent theologian, likens the lordship of God to three key attributes. Control, authority, and covenantal presence. We worship the Lord who controls all things, who has the right to control all things. And most importantly, is a God who does so because he loves us and is covenantally present and faithful to be with his people. Consider passages like Isaiah 40, verse 12 and 14, that remind us who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out the heavens with a span. And whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and show showed him the way of understanding. The point, of course, is that no one did. He is Lord. He alone controls all things and has the right to control all things. And yet this Lord, who controls all things, does so for the benefit of those whom he loves. He loves you. And this, of course, is most vividly demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ. For this God, our Lord, so loved us that he sent his only Son to die on the cross for us. He ordained the crucifixion of his own Son that his justice and wrath might be satisfied, that his control and authority might be demonstrated and that the love for his people might be revealed despite our rebellion, despite our propensity to worship the created rather than the creator. Jesus ransomed people for God by his blood from every tribe, from every language and people and nation. So he alone is worthy to be called Lord. Now, all of that can seem a little bit lofty and intellectual. So let me maybe bring it a a bit closer to home. The psalmist says in verse 2, Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. You know, we've already seen some of what these mighty deeds are. 
But have you considered that not only is He Lord over your life because He died and rose again for you, but that He is Lord over your life because everything from your very next breath that you take to your daily struggles is infused with His control, with His authority, and with His presence. If there's anything that the Bible teaches us, it is that we cannot live holy and godly lives apart from the Lordship of God. We were in need of Him desperately when He brought us out of the darkness and into the light. And we need Him presently in our daily struggles. We will even need Him as we take our very next breath. Did you take a breath just now? Well, that is the mercy of God. In fact, we will need Him every moment of our lives from the uttering of this word until he returns. The Christian life is infused through and through with the grace and divine intervention of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Consider Hebrews 1, 2-3. It says, In the last days God has spoken to us by his Son, that's Jesus, whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, And what? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 reminds us that Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. But consider also that even the act of creation itself is a divine intervention. Romans 4.17 reminds us that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Ex nihilo, as they say. He created out of nothing. He spoke into existence light, land, life, even time. This notion that one thing proceeds after another is a creation of God. The stability of the earth as we know it with its revolving seasons of spring, summer, fall, and winter, the seemingly unceasing cycle of cold and heat is a testament to God's word. Consider Genesis 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You know, there's there's a certain irony to the normality of life, Right? that what we consider normal and continual actually requires the continual intervention of our Lord. And that's not all. Because He is the Lord, and because He created the heavens and the earth, there is no place that He is not Lord. And so the psalmist exhorts us to praise Him. Well, everywhere. Praise Him in the sanctuary. Praise Him here in the movie theater. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him in every conceivable nook and cranny of His heavens and earth. Wherever people, God's people are gathered, we praise Him. What does that mean? Well, oddly enough, you may have noticed that I have only so far talked about the who. But with God, the who question actually answers the what, the why, and the where question as well. And so we don't really need to cover that. 
<laughs> so where does that leave us? Well, the psalmist continues on in verses 3 through 5 with a bit of a how-to. How do we praise the Lord? I once uh, helped to start an English congregation in a Chinese church. And in that context, my wife and I began to introduce liturgies of praise and worship. I had to learn the guitar pretty quickly. Um, Not nearly as good as Tanner. Uh, But we began to lead these young ones in the discipline of praising our Lord. And as it turned out, uh, they thoroughly enjoyed praising God. And, And soon all manner of singing and instrument playing would pervade throughout the, this, the main church hall. It was a glorious sound, even though some were out of tune and perhaps rhythmically challenged. To hear these young hearts express their heartfelt and sincere devotion to our Lord was music, music to our ears. It so happened, however, that this gathering and worship time that we had coincided with the Chinese side's Sunday school classes. And so one Sunday, I was confronted by a rather concerned deacon from the Chinese side who said, I kid you not, would you mind not praising the Lord so loudly this morning? (laughs) Now, were it not for the obvious um, lack of translation, poor translation, I would have rebuked my dear brother by quoting from Luke 19, 37 through 40. It says this, As Jesus was drawing near already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The point is that genuine people of God cannot help but express their praise to our Lord. And we do so loudly, with shouts, with noise. Consider what the psalmist says. With the trumpet the instrument of call and of battle cries, of coronation and kings, with the lute and harp, the instruments of sweetness and melody, with the tambourine and dance, the expression of whole-bodied movement in adoration of the Creator, with strings and pipe, the harmonious instruments with depth, with sounding cymbals, loud clashing cymbals, the instruments of accent. Now, just an aside, I I really, really enjoy how this all gets executed and implemented here at Christ City, by the way. I love how Tanner leads us in songs of praise that remind us of the mighty deeds and attributes of God. How Marlene and Daisy and Nathan play the piano. How people like Sue play whatever that thing is, the mandolin, I think. <laughs> and people like Jordan and, and uh, Jeremy keep rhythm. And people like Emelina, who so joyfully worships the Lord with her viola. What a beautiful, beautiful expression of what the psalmist says here in Psalm 150. 
But there's a deeper aspect to simply making noise. I was really struck, actually, by the term clashing symbols. Does that, does that not make you think of 1 Corinthians 13.1? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, if I am, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And so we learn from this contrast that our hearts matter. We worship and praise the Lord with all of the noisemakers as an expression of delight and joy to the Lord whom we love. It goes back to my main point. We worship that which we value. And my hope is that you will see that the Lord is the one of infinite value. In our society and in our culture, the contrast could not be more evident. Even the instruments of praise can be directed toward meaningless purposes if they are directed toward the created, toward the creature rather than the creator. How we idolize shows like America's Got Talent or The Voice, and we fail to see the redemptive purpose for which we have been given music. My sister, who is an accomplished classical pianist and teacher, writes this. She says, There is something about the stage that has caught my attention since I was very young. I love that I could be part of expressing something that was beautiful. When I perform today, my hope is that the audience will focus less on me and more on the music and what is happening inside of them as a result. She writes, I had the opportunity as a teen to hear a performance of J.S. Bach's concerto for two violins played outdoors on the mountains of Whistler, B.C. I was struck by how the music and surroundings fit together with such order, emotion, and grace. I remember noticing how the musician seemed moved by this as well. I later learned that Bach wrote Soli Dio Gloria at the end of his compositions. The phrase in English means glory to God alone. And I realized what had moved me so many years ago was the experience of God's creation and glory. The evidence was all around. The mountains, the trees, the water, the sky, and Bach's beautiful composition played by skilled musicians. The experience is still fresh in my mind. Soli Dio Gloria, glory to God, is what I set before me as I practice, as I teach and perform. It is both a humbling and joyful purpose. Well, we get to our third point, redeemed breath. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. He says in verse 6. Commentators have noted this, that the psalmist is so emphatic with his declarations to praise the Lord that our praise simply is not enough. That we must call upon and enlist all of mankind, all of the animals, everything that has breath to praise God. Like a rousing chorus positioned at the end of a giant musical production. I recently saw Les Miserables. Have you seen the finale when everybody comes together with a rousing song? The psalmist invites us to hear and participate in the ever-growing choir of creatures 
praising and giving glory to God. This great hallelujah foretells of the even greater hallelujah in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb when the great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, cry out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. But I see a double, maybe even deeper meaning to the psalmist's exhortation, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Could the psalmist be exhorting all that have the breath of life to praise the Lord? That would be even more significant. For in Genesis 2-7, we are told that human beings were given the breath of life, our soul. John uses the same word in John 20.20 when he describes a scene where Jesus tells his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit and he breathed upon them. If indeed this double meaning is true, then the psalmist's exhortation would be that we are to engage every part of our body and soul in praising the Lord. And that indeed in Christ, nothing is wasted breath or mere breath or vanity of vanities, as Solomon pens in Ecclesiastes 1. But that in Christ, our worship has been redeemed, it's been recreated, it's been given new life, that we might praise the one who made it come to pass. To me, this brings clarity to those times when our hearts are not necessarily in the right place. It means that our praise is not merely self-generated effort, but that in Christ, our praise is an outworking of His Holy Spirit. It is evidence of His presence within us to express our deepest delight, our deepest identity, our deepest joy to the one who not only created us, but redeemed us, recreated us, and is making us more like Him, and has the power to change our hearts that we might see with faith. In other words, worship and praise is both an expression and a means by which our hearts are transformed. And so with all that in mind, Let me close with some practical implications. Five things. Five practical implications. Number one. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Cultivate a regular attitude of reminding yourself who it is that you are giving praise to in your work, when you walk about the malls as you go about your day-to-day adult life, to be conscious of whom you are worshiping. There used to be this helpful call and response I would use with youth, where I would call out, attitude check! And they would call out, praise the Lord! And what I mean is this, be aware and convicted of our heart's tendency to be fickle, to tend toward worshiping other things, even subtly. Subtly. 
second practical implication. Choose songs that are Christ-centered and that speak of his mighty deeds and of his excellent greatness rather than songs that focus on our feelings and our responses. I don't think I have to say too much on that one. Third, don't be afraid to employ and redeem creation for praise purposes. Don't be afraid to employ and redeem creation for praise purposes. I love how so many of the hymns that we, we sing and that we cherish are actually rewordings of the pop songs of the day. How the hymn writers took those pop songs, those popular songs, and redeemed them and put new words to them. And fourth, this is a big one for me. Remember that we are embodied souls. We are saved body and soul. And so use all of it to worship. I used to think that lifting my hands meant that I was going to be a charismatic, (laughs) that I was automatically going to be labeled a Pentecostal. But I've I've been learning this, that it's okay to worship with all our body that we express. I mean, when we are angry at someone, we use our hands, right? So why don't we do that when we worship? We don't have to be stoic about our worship. Express, express to him our praise, not only with our voices, but with our hands and our feet. Number five, when our hearts are feeling weak, praise him anyway. When our hearts are feeling weak, praise him anyway. Let the praise itself be a means of grace for the spirit to work through you, to remind you of who he is and what is to come. I began by saying that I care deeply for each one of you. And I I really meant that. And because of that care, because I care deeply for each of you, I care deeply about whom you worship. I said that for a reason. Because this is not just a matter of platitudes. This is personal. Praising the Lord is a deep expression of whom I value of my source of joy, of the glory of my Lord, of the consummation of the end. And I desire for you to discover that too. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this morning because you are the Lord God Almighty. You are holy, holy, holy. Thank you that you have redeemed our breath, that we might use it for your glory, that we might sing of your mighty deeds and of your excellent greatness. Move in our hearts, we pray, today and this week. And until you return, that we might praise you each day and worship you with, with our, from the bottom of our hearts in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name mighty name we pray amen thanks for listening for more information about christ city church in vancouver please visit christcitychurch.ca we invite you to join us in praying that god's kingdom would come in vancouver as it is in heaven